You're listening to Travel Tales with Virgo. We finished season one today with a fascinating interview with Richard Fitzpatrick, a Barcelona-based Irish journalist. This is part of our Expat Live series, and Richard gives a great insight into what it's like as an Irishman living in Barcelona. Season two will be coming in January, so check out my Instagram at Travel Tales with Fergal for updates. I would like to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas, and I hope that next year we get back to some form of normality and we start be able to dream of travels again. Richard, you're very welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Uh, thanks for having me on, Fergal. Delighted. W- were you planning to go home this Christmas? Uh, yeah, I, we would go home pretty much every year um, at Christmas. Uh, we spent a couple here for different reasons o- over the last 10 years. But normally, yeah, we love going back to Christmas. That's the routine. And so this year I was waiting, uh, like most people, I guess, was waiting till the 1st of December to make a call on it. Um, but it just wasn't feasible um, to do it. And, you know, like li- as an expat living abroad, I suppose that it must make it even harder, does it? Not being able to come home this Christmas. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. It's kind of a couple of things. I suppose it's not so much the fact of Christmas itself. It's just uh, it's been a year now since I, I've been home myself and I just am um, desperate to see my dad and my, my two aunts who are, who are elderly. So just really keen to see them. The whole Christmas team, uh, I guess if we were having this chat two months ago, I would have been really despondent. But because of the COVID situation and the, and the realisation that the vaccine is on the way, the, um, uh, the cavalry is, is en route, that kind of changes yeah. things. So psychologically, it, so, exactly. Yeah. I've kind of personally, I've kind of written off this Christmas. It doesn't m- matter so much. We'll ha- have a normal Christmas next year. Um, so it's only a temporary thing. Um, but uh, it is. Yeah, it's it's, it's a huge uh, thing to, to miss out on. Christmas in Ireland is so special. It's anywhere I've lived around the world. Nothing compares to an Irish Christmas. And why do you think that is? What is it about an Irish Christmas that you love? Um, there's just, uh, say in Barcelona, there's just not the buzz around, you know, when you go out on the streets. Um, I think the, the pub itself is a huge factor because the pub is such an integral part of Irish kind of social life. The buzz when you go into a pub in Ireland in those couple of weeks running up to Christmas um, if, yeah. if you're if it's you're returning to your hometown or village or whatever to seeing friends you wouldn't have seen in a year um, th- th- there just isn't that um, kind of uh, uh, buzz around the place in in Catalonia or in Barcelona that you would get it back back in Ireland and do you know small things like I mean you'd have to have a heart of stone not to be lifted every time you hear uh, the Pogues fairy tale in New York, especially any time you walk into a pub, you know, and those kind of things are coming back through the airport at Dublin. You have the carol singers there. Like it's just a magical, magical feeling around Ireland at Christmas time. I heard someone on the radio the other day, a retiree saying that she, she goes out to the airport just to watch people coming in and meeting loved ones, just to see the buzz. That's, that's the start of her Christmas, you know? Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. I totally would get it. I told, I have vivid memories uh, of that, that airport scene. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. yeah. 
And did you have any traditions like, say, your own yourself or your own family that you'd have every Christmas that you think of as your memory or? Yeah, a few that we specific to Claire. Like, I mean, uh, the Christmas Day swim in Lahinch, I absolutely love doing that. Uh, it's just a, a great, great crack, like two or three hundred people. Uh, in my memory, it's always been kind of goodish weather, you know, a nice yeah. Christmas day. What time is that at? 11 o'clock usually in the morning. So just a great, a great sense of camaraderie. And it's a lovely yeah. way to to kind of kick off the day. One of my best friends, Richard Murphy's birthday is Christmas Eve. So I almost every Christmas Eve for 30, almost 30 years now, that would be my my staple is going into Fafa's pub in Parnell Street in Ennis uh, during the day for a, for a session or for um, particularly when we were all younger I and mean, we yeah. got uh, pretty raucous in there. Um, so, yeah, that's I immediately think of that. Um, and that is a quintessential Irish pub, Fafa's full of locals. And and the thing, too, like I see the com- the comparison with, say, Barcelona, the pub scene, like, for example, uh, Christmas Eve in a pub like that, you'd have every age group mixed in together and it's a real free for all. Um, whereas in Barcelona, it's a lot more reserved and the 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 bars with a lot of activity or 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 that are just kind of for young people you know people in their 20s or that whereas you get that great mix in a, in an Irish pub yeah particularly but, at christmas it's all yeah. ages mm. that's always my my memory is going to brogans on christmas eve say when i was college era and then just out you know my when i'd started working in dublin and coming back and you know, it's so Irish, like going into Brogan's for one, because I'd have probably tea at six and, you know, leave, <laughs> they'd close probably around eight or nine and leaving and then walking around the town trying to find a chipper open and they were never open and always shocked that they weren't <laughs> open <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and going home hungry yeah, 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 and yeah. happy. Yeah, leaving presents behind you in the pub. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking, pre- I've done that, you know, come home with a bag wrapped present and you know, it's it's rattling because it's broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what is your partner's name, actually? I Michelle. She's Michelle. Venezuelan. Yeah. Do you ever go to Venezuela for Christmas? Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, what we have never been there for Christmas Day, but we've been there for New Year's. Um, we used to always go every year, kind of January time. January, February was uh, it was. Uh, it's cheap and stuff to get flights at that time. But we were there for New Year's Eve one year. Um, is it summer there or winter? Yeah, uh, Venezuela's paradise or because it's, it's on the equator. It's always summer. Spain is, as you know, is manky in the summer. It's too hot. It's not yeah. uh, pleasant. But Venezuela is just 25, 26 every day. Like, it's just, oh, it's it's beautiful. Like, Yeah. So, and is New Year's Eve, is it like big fireworks or what is uh, it? Or is yeah, it, is it big Eve, there? Uh, yeah, it is a big, um, it is a big festival. But Venezuela is, is such an unusual country in my experience. And, and this is the case for the last 20 years because it's so dangerous there. They live uh, under curfew, effectively. You can't kind of go out at nighttime. Um, so their socializing is all... Um, 
in houses and they would be very family oriented anyway you'd have you know all the close family the the uncles the aunts you'd you'd have about 20 people in the house um but it's all house parties they don't go to the pubs much um so that's the kind of socializing there it's a it's a bit unusual like you you might go to restaurants the odd time as well but it's really house-based socializing yeah so the, the exact opposite bar this year that that'll be ireland this year <laughs> yeah you know? yeah 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 totally and i know it was uh, yeah it was thinking about that like ireland to me is absolutely the pub that's what i that's the hub of the social life you know that and it's very different to to spain to venezuela in that regard and is it is it what about barcelona then what is it like there yeah well christmas uh uh, the pub definitely is not the center of the social life in in Barcelona. People go to the to, to the restaurants, the cafes, and the bars, but you you social you socialize at your table. You know, you sit at your table and you get tapas and stuff. Okay. Whereas um, there's nothing to beat the Irish pub because it's it's bedlam. You're up at the bar counter and you're you know you're meeting randomers and you know exactly. uh, there's a lot more. I don't know what the word is. Uh, Interaction. Just the, night, with... the night can take you anywhere, you know. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Are there any traditions in, in Barcelona, like Catalan Christmas traditions? Do they celebrate on a different oh, day? or? Yeah, they do. Um, Cat- uh, Christmas is over. Um, it's, a lo- it's a long period. It's Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then New Year's Eve. And then you have Las Reyes, the uh, the the three the three wise men or the the kings they they call it. That's traditionally the big festival here. Um, what day is that? That 27th? is this, the the night of the fifth of January. Um, oh, so it's okay. this, it's uh, what would be in Ireland Little Christmas, or, or yeah, is yeah. it? Uh, so that's yeah. the big uh, gift kind of arrival day. Uh, historically, that's there wouldn't have been um, Santa Claus in Catalonia or Spain. The presents would arrive for um, the, on the night of the fifth of January, and that's great crack because you you go to your either you you go to your local neighborhood and they have a big procession um, through the neighborhood. The kings arrive and they're like on floats. They're sitting up in these big chairs. And there's great excitement. You're waiting for them to come and the children get really uh, excited and uh, they pass by and they throw, uh, they have all these helpers on the float and they throw out sweets and you'd want to bring your elbows with you because it can get pretty dirty. Uh, <laughs> oh, for, the, the, for the sweets and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Trying to pick up the sweets uh, on the ground. And then last year we went into the center of the city for the first time and as opposed to going to our local barrio and the, you had hardcore operators there like people bring in their um ladders so you could get a good vantage point and stuff wow. and uh it was it was great fun like so that's very exciting um and, and was there a big like is there a big parade in center town then like, yeah it's massive it's kind of like saint patrick's day parade or wow. that and uh, music and stuff like um so that that's full on the great catalan kind of tradition at christmas is uh el caganar have you ever heard of this guy no, or no. Cago, uh, cagateo so this guy it's um 
it goes back centuries. So um, what happens for the kids is Kagatio, uh, am I, can we, can I curse on this uh, of podcast? Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah right. it's Christmas. So yeah, Kagatio uh, is Uncle Shit. Um, so this guy is, is a, historically he was a kind of a peasant type character who spends his uh, year in the mountains and then when a, a couple of weeks before Christmas, he flies in the window of your apartment or, or your house or whatever, and he lands by the the Christmas tree. And he's he's a kind of log, and he's got this uh, happy face on him and a, a baratina, the kind of Catalan hat on him. And uh, you feed him, the kids feed him every night running up to Christmas. And then uh, on Christmas Day, you hit him with a stick and he poops out or he shits out toys um, uh, or sweets for the kids and a variation of that uh, kind of exercise is in the markets in the run-up to Christmas you can buy uh, El Cagonar this is a guy a a little figurine of a guy um, making a shit and uh, they they model them like in celebrities of the day Messi or Donald Trump or these kind of characters. So you, you should Google a picture of them. You, you, I bring them home as presents to Ireland every every year to friends and stuff, or you'd get priests or nuns. And uh, so you, you put them with your crib under the tree. How are things at the moment in Barcelona? Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's the same the world over, isn't it? Uh, Spain at large is really grappling uh, with the virus. It's not doing so well. And Barcelona and Madrid is the two big urban centers, the two big cities are suffering the worst. So, I mean, that's consuming people um, uh, because of the virus and then the impact it's had on the economy. I mean, tourism is a huge part of the economy of Barcelona. I mean, it's an industrial city, but tourism as well. It must have really affected it over the summer. Oh, it's absolutely dramatic. Um, the city is like a ghost town. And people, visitors to Barcelona would know Sagrada Familia, um, the, the Gaudi church in the city. That has stopped construction because um, the construction of that church um, depends on tourist income. Um, the people who come along and pay the entrance fee to go into the into see the works. Um, so that is, has stopped so it's it's just every uh, everywhere like more it's affected more uh, than other countries because um, Spain is so dependent on on tourism and, and particularly a city like Barcelona. You know the situation in in Catalan like has the political situation died down because of the you know the health situation or yeah undoubtedly uh, just you you can't like um um obvious things like you can't protest you know you could there's uh, like every 11th of september is la, la diada the the national day of um of independence in catalonia and since 2012 there have been marches in the city um you'd get up to 1.8 million people marching people bussing in from all over the region from the rural areas of Catalonia into the city and it's a real it's a peaceful protest lots of color and it's um, like for Irish listeners it'd be the equivalent to St Patrick's Day um great kind of festival atmosphere 
I mean, that that didn't happen this year. Um, you, you just can't do those big protests. Yeah. Uh, people are focusing on just the day-to-day um, surviving, as we touched on, the economy has been shattered. So people have, have uh, more immediate concerns. So that definitely has taken a step back. And it, it's not surprising to me either because the that Catalan independence struggle has has kind of gone up and down through the centuries it's it goes back like three four centuries um that struggle for independence but it 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 gets um it gets serious or gets more pronounced um when the economy is doing badly so uh, before the last financial crash around 2008 2009 the polling for independence was at about 20 percent but it was the downturn, that big recession that hit 10 or 12 years ago that accelerated the independence movement. And that's what brought the polling figures up to about 45% uh, of people who want independence. So now as people struggle with the coronavirus that has, has receded. At, at the root as well, this, this Catalan independence struggle, you will it's not black and white. It's not 90% of Catalans want independence. At best, it's 50-50. Most Catalans have a dual identity. They feel kind of Spanish and um, and Catalan at the same time. Um, you know, a lot of them will have, uh, their parents will be from other parts of, of Spain, you know, Badajoz or Madrid or wherever. And they would have emigrated to or migrated to Barcelona, say, in the 60s, looking for work. So there's a a big mix. And Barcelona itself, the city is very, very multicultural. It's more in the rural areas that you have the real um, diehard Catalan separatists. So I would stress it's a kind of 50-50 breakdown in the population. And um, if, if it ever, if the the region does secede from Spain, it'll be a knife edge. It'll, it'll only be, you know, by a couple of percent that a referendum would, would pass. So The kids, are, is, it, is it Catalan, the kids, when they go to school? Is that the language that they use, Spanish, or how does it work there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really pertinent question. They do. We have two kids. They're seven and two, and the two-year-old, he'll be three ne- next month. He, he's just started into big school as well. He's in the, the preschool part of it, but he'll be there until he's 18 alongside his his sister uh who's five years older than him but um they all go the schooling is all through catalan it's amazing um like my wife is spanish or sorry she's a spanish speaker she's from venezuela but the two kids now are doing everything through catalan and um, it's it's absolutely fascinating to see it um at play like the girl our daughter chloe she'll play with her friends and it's a mix some some friends she speaks to in spanish because their parents are spanish speaking and some uh, uh, kids should speak in Catalan um, with, in, in Catalan with them. I, I remember we were visiting a friends of ours about nine months ago I'd say they're an English couple um, so the parents we were all speaking English and the two Chloe and their daughter were inside in the playroom playing and this daughter would speak English at home because her parents are both English but um, they started communicating or speaking in Catalan to each other because that was uh, the kind of language that they hit on to communicate. It was, it was amazing. Like, um, like Chloe, by default, would be a Spanish speaker, um, our daughter, because, but yet she navigates her way 
through these three languages. It's Catalan, as well, I should stress, isn't uh, like um, a dialect. It's it's a completely different language to Spanish, or not completely, but very, very different. It's, it's closer to French than Spanish. So, I mean, the, the joke here is people around Spain would call Catalans Polacos, or Polish, because they think they sound like Poles when they speak. So, I mean, it's also very contentious, the language issue here. What are, are they different personality-wise to the rest of Spain? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the leading they, question. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I, 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 at the well, at the risk of generalizing and stereotypes, um, but I, I enjoy them <laughs> myself. Uh, yes, they are. They're very different to um, other people, other parts of Spain. Now, look, you have to take it on an individual case by case basis. People are people the world over, but but I would see differences definitely between, generally speaking, again, I stress, uh, between people from Catalonia and people from the south in particular, from Andalusia. Um, and Andalusians or people in Madrid as well in the centre, they would be, for me, stereotypically Spanish people, very warm, open, madcap, um, just, you know, great fun. Catalans, in comparison, are very reserved. They're, um, they're, it's, they're quite difficult to get to know. Um, they're a bit standoffish. Once you get to know them, they're fantastic. Um, they're a, a gentle people. Like, they're, it's very interesting. There's no armed terror, or there's no terrorism in Catalonia. Um, in, in the Basque separatist struggle, um, You've had ETA, who are basically like the IRA. They've mm. carried on a campaign for 30 years or whatever, exactly the same as the IRA bombing and uh, kidnapping and terrorist activity. You never had that in Catalonia. It's always been peaceful uh, protests. They've been very canny and successful in, in getting um, uh, things from the Madrid government Um but uh, true dialogue and true negotiation. Back to those differences, they they are very very reserved people. They would look quite quite aloof as well. They you know they fancy themselves. They're the engine of the Spanish economy more or less, along with the Basques. Um, they see themselves as being successful and wealthy, um, and they would look down their nose a bit. Uh, and this isn't everybody, but I, I do honestly get this sense, you know, the, the lazy Southerners, you know, that kind of aspect. So they 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 can be um, that kind of introverted, reserved, definitely more so than other parts of Spain. Tell us, how long have you actually been in Barcelona? Uh, Ten years. And you went there as a journalist, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, the usual story, love. Uh, I met a girl uh, who's, in, uh, who's now my wife. Uh, met her at a wedding in Venezuela, and uh, she was, this was January or February, I think, and then she was moving to Barcelona the following summer, the following August, to um, do a master's in publishing. So we stayed in touch, and then when she got to Spain, I started, or we started going backwards and forwards. I was living in Dublin at the time, um between dublin and barcelona and after about six months of that i decided to move over um it had kind of been in my head uh 
to do, I was in my 30s at this stage and I was keen to do one more tour of the battlefield to do a kind of year abroad or something. I was thinking of going to New York or somewhere like that. So moving wasn't that difficult a thing for me to do. I hadn't any ties in the country or such. Um, so it was a, gr a great adventure for me. I was happy to do it and uh, things accelerated very quickly from there. And we have, you know, the two kids now and all the rest of it. Yeah. So very happy here. And it, it's a good base for us because it's a kind of halfway house between Ireland and uh, it's Spanish speaking and, and for her um, and her Venezuelan uh side of the family and uh um so it's a good yeah it's a good a good spot for us to settle and it is uh, a beautiful city isn't it i mean do you love it there oh my god it's a, extraordinary absolutely uh, adore it um we for the first few years we lived right in the center in uh, the elborn first of all and then uh raval beside uh, la rambla and though that city centre is just enchanting, the Gothic quarter, I mean, you could, it's like a labyrinth. You can get lost in those streets just wandering around. I have got lost in them. <laughs> um, they're, they're these tiny medieval streets, or very narrow medieval streets. Um, little bars got, and restaurants. Oh, know. yeah. And the, the cafe culture, you know, s sitting outside. Um, then you've got all the, the other aspects of the city, you've the beach front, uh, Costa Brava up the coast. You've got um, the mountains behind you, the Pyrenees, then a couple of hours away. Um, it's uh, in Barcelona, the culture and history of the city is, is fascinating. And you've got the architecture as well. Then, like, I mean, Gaudi has... There's seven UNESCO heritage Gaudi sites in, in the city. I think there's only two or three UNESCO heritage sites in Ireland. You know, wow. it's it's staggering. Like, um, uh, Famila, Sagria, you know, that has to be one of the most beautiful yeah. buildings in the world. You know, often mm. when you go to these buildings with the crowds, etc., I still would always tell people to go there. It's worth the queue. And yeah, yeah. I'm the same. I, I tell them, yeah, uh, you, not necessarily. You don't have to go in and... Uh, yeah go into, into pay the 20 euro or whatever and do the queues, but just to walk around it, it's, it's breathtaking. Like it's, he's, he's absolutely, it was an extraordinary figure and a very interesting personality as well. He was a devout uh, Catholic and ascetic. Like he used to live on uh, like, uh, you know, just a hard uh, mattress uh, in a kind of single room. He was completely, uh, uh, an uh, ascetic and he, he was killed then he was knocked down by a streetcar a tram wow. he was backing onto the street looking up at the church and uh, he was knocked over and killed but, wow. um, he had an amazing character you mentioned there is it the beside the ramblers ravella is that what it's called ravella yeah uh, raval that oh, name it, yeah. I, I, yeah i spent a night along there doing tapas bars with that friend oh. actually that used to live there it's, and ah. that's why I always say to people also, like one street or two off Rambolus and then you're in the proper Barcelona. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would advise anybody coming to the city in normal times, not, you know, get off La Rambla. Don't ever eat there. It's overpriced and bad food. You'd find all the good tapas bars and restaurants um, further in. If you go, if you're walking down towards the the sea, uh, along La Rambla on the right hand side is Raval and then on the other side is um, 
the Gothic Quarter and Elborn. You've fantastic uh, restaurants in those areas and bars. Uh, Raval especially is very uh, earthy. That's uh, the bottom half of the street is where the prostitutes hang out and for for a, over a century. But uh, and it's very um, good tip. Uh, very uh, there's a huge kind of um, Pakistani and Indian ambience there, Moroccan ambience there. Uh, when we used to live there, uh, I used to love would take the dog out for a walk at like midnight or one in the morning. And uh, you'd see guys out in the park playing cricket. It was beautiful to see, you know. So um, they've they've really um, they've uh, brought a great energy all those immigrants to that neighbourhood. You know, you're you're well known, obviously, with the stand. Recently, you've you've been doing a lot talking about Messi and Barcelona. You're known for writing all over the world about that. So that has been uh, so. He eventually stayed, didn't he? That was a surprise, uh, wasn't Messi, it? Messi, he did, yeah, yeah. It was t- ten days. Of, it was like living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> he, 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 he eventually stepped back from the edge of the cliff. Was he just looking for more money, or was it? A- yeah, it's a good question. No, honestly, no, definitely not. I mean, he wouldn't get he wouldn't get more money wherever he went. Uh, not if he wanted to stay with an elite club. He's so well paid at Barca, like one hundred and six million gross in salary. You know. Uh, and then his own situation could change. He's really, really upset now, uh, especially with the Suarez. Luis Suarez has gone to Atletico Madrid. He got very upset about that, that he was kicked out of the club. But Messi's situation could change, you know, within a year is a long time. Um, he could kind of settle down a bit and work, yeah, with a new re- new regime. And the places he's looking to go at, say, Man City is the front runner. Who knows what will happen there? I wouldn't be surprised if Guardiola gets sacked in the ne- or walks away in, in the next year. Um, he tends to burn out at clubs, so maybe that won't be as attractive for him. I, I also... <laughs> um, um, wondering why he would want to go to Manchester to a city like that uh, and leave uh, the good weather and he's, all his family are settled here in, in this, just they live outside the city in a beautiful area. You know, that would be very disruptive for his kids and stuff. Um, he's already admitted that, that there was a lot of tears from all the family when he said back in August that he was moving. So, yeah. Life, he's been there. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, since he was a thirteen-year-old, yeah, absolutely. And his, you know, a lot of his family are here. His, his brother and his sister and his parents have a house close by. Although they moved to Milan, or his father did a couple of months ago, or a few months ago. So, um, yeah, mo- most his life is 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 in um, the city. You know, so you have a history with uh, Messi. You've re- you wrote that great book, El Clasico. And you've done obviously loads of articles. Um, am I right in saying you went to Argentina to go to where he's from? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. A couple of a few years, I think it was twenty seventeen. I went down to Rosario, his hometown. It's the third biggest city in Argentina, for about ten days to do a couple of stories on him, uh, on his background. Uh, one was about um, the youth team he played with, uh, they were called La Macana del 87, the machine of 87. All the kids were born that year in 87 and they played for Newell's Old Boys. That was Messi's club in, in Rosario, a famous club, a famous nursery of football in Argentina. A lot of great players like Jorge Veldano or 
that Estuta would have come out of the club. Or Marcelo Bielsa is from that club. The stadium is actually called after him, um, the Leeds United manager at the moment. That was a real cradle for Messi. That team was was extraordinary. Um, and Messi obviously was was the, their key player. He scored like five or six hundred goals during his his time at this. Uh, with them, he he was very young at this stage, but um, from around six or seven to thirteen. Um, so I just tracked down some of his old teammates and talked, spoke to them, and uh, family members, and his old coaches, and also did a piece on his brother, who's a bit of a the black sheep of the family, Matthias. Um, he's been in a, a trouble with the law back in Rosario and he's got hangs out or has connections with uh, Los Manos, the, 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 the big drugs cartel in Argentina, one of the most fearsome um, drug gangs in South America. Um, so it was just digging into that um, uh, story as well. And also you went to Madeira for Ronaldo, didn't you? Was that part of that book or was that a separate... Yeah, that was separate after that. I, I went there a couple of years ago to write a, um, a story on Ronaldo. So Madeira is this island. Um, it's closer to Africa than than Portugal. Ronaldo would be Portuguese. He obviously plays with the Portugal national team. So it's part of Portugal, but it's completely out in the, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I had a pretty hair-raising flight into the island because it's so uh, windy. Um, flights often get cancelled in there. It's it's difficult to take off and and uh, land in on the island. Um, I'd encourage people. I I remember checking at the time. I don't know if flights are still going there there, but I remember noticing at the time that flights were going from Dublin. Um, so if you're thinking about the Canary Islands or something for a holiday, I'd tell you go to Madeira instead. It's far nicer. It's a beautiful, beautiful island. Green, isn't it? Much more very lush. Yeah, yeah, very um, uh, verdant. And every house nearly on the island or apartment has a view of the sea. Um, it's quite, quite mountainous, and it kind of flows down to the to the waterfronts. Um, so absolutely beautiful island and Fungal is the, the main city there. It's only 100,000 people. That's where Ronaldo's grew up. Uh, he ended up going to the uh, sporting academy in, in, in Lisbon when he was 12. So he kind of left the island at that stage, but he still has a house there and he spent the lockdown there as well. Um, so it's it's a be- beautiful island. Do you uh, recommend it? Hugely so, yeah, yeah. And tell us, you know, you've obviously you've written the book in the El Clasico um, and you've been to many, I'm sure. Like, how mm. does it compare being in Barcelona and Madrid, you know? Um, yeah, there the would be... You could say, pick one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One I, I prefer the Bernabeu Stadium. Um, the, the structure of it, the stands are a lot more vertical, the... Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, you're right on top of the pitch. Um, uh, they're 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 b- both very similar in some respects. Um, and this would apply for stadiums around the big clubs. The stadiums around the world now are very similar. You know, the pitches are perfect, and um, the the uh, facilities are in good nick. Although the camp now, the Barcelona Stadium is quite disheveled at this stage but it's still on the, the first time I'll never forget the first time I went to Clasico there in, in October November 2010 
and just walking up the steps and coming out into the the stands or the terraces and seeing like a hundred thousand people around and it was just an incredible um, atmosphere especially late at, at, at night in the winter uh, and all the great games I've been to have been those night fixtures particularly in the Champions League um, at both those stadiums when they're under floodlights um, and the classic goes there'd be an extra edge I, uh, obviously especially on the well on both sides they both the hatred is mutual um, the the atmosphere is amazing it would be kind of diluted now I feel because uh, this is pre-COVID but because you have so many tourists and because these big games are so kind of gentrified that, that the fans are being kind of priced out of it, the, the local fans. Um, you'll only have like a, a cohort behind the one, one end of each ground where the real hardcore fans go. So it's definitely not like, I wasn't there, like but compared to the 80s or 90s when it was a, a lot more raucous. I haven't been to so many. When it was Ronaldo and Messi together, did that add an extra level of, you know, to the best players of all time. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, um, they and for several years they went toe to toe. Like I think Messi has scored about twenty six goals in Clasicos. Ronaldo maybe, I don't know about eighteen or something. So yeah, there was games. There was one in October twenty twelve. Remember two two draw. They both scored two each. Um, they've scored some incredible goals there in 2012, April 2012. Ronaldo scored the winning goal, and which won, wrapped up the league title effectively for Real Madrid that day. It was the day, the last in April 2017, last minute Messi scored an unbelievable goal uh, to help Barca win 3 2. Um, the, the best, I would say, classico I was ever at, or the most enjoyable, was. The one in, um, would have been around May 2011 in the Champions League semi-final, first leg. Um, Messi scored this goal. He scored two goals that day. They won 2-0. The second goal he got, um, people would remember it probably. He got the ball. Busquets just touched it to him around the halfway line and he dribbled through five or six players and slotted it into the net. Um, it was just out of this world. Um, but um, so, yeah, they've... It just lit up that fixture um, and they, there's been a kind of peak moment in that rivalry over the last 10 years which is dwindling now where they were the best far and away the two best teams in the world you had this was coming off the back of Spain's success success in international tournaments win the World Cup and European Championships so you, the backbone of both teams had all those players Javi uh, Iniesta all the rest of them Sergio Ramos and then you had Messi and Ronaldo just lifting it um, um, another notch so yeah it's, it was incredible to watch them in their peak Amazing times. Just something I wanted to go back to. You mentioned earlier in the interview that um, you you met your wife in Venezuela. That was a country that used to be on my bucket list. Kind of mm. in the last oh, few yeah. years, has kind of come off. But what what is Venezuela <laughs> like? Is it, it looks amazing? Kind of tropical. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's paradise. I mean, the it's it's um it's on the equator, the Caribbean, those beautiful sandy beaches, like gorgeous beaches. Um, the weather is 
it's 25, 26 degrees year round. Like it's, you're never too hot. And the people there are so um, warm and open. And um, like, I know when I, when, when I go to, and it would apply across South America, although people in Peru and Bolivia would be a bit more reserved than Chile, Tambia as well. But um, when I'm going to a bar or restaurant in Spain, I can tell immediately, um, or when I'm in Barcelona, I can tell immediately if the staff are South American because they'll be so warm and open and just willing to have a chat and interested in you. Um, so that applies uh, with, in spades in Venezuela. The people are just fantastic there. Um, but the country has been just turned upside down in the last, uh, well, 20 years with uh, Chavismo. The, since Hugo Chavez came into power, not so much in the first 10 years of, the of his reign, but he did bring in the division and he made it a very divisive society. But now in the last five or 10 years, he, he died in 2013. Uh, his successor um, has just let the country go to rack and ruin. They've suffered also from global factors. The price of oil has dropped. So, but the country now has come to a standstill. It's like Cuba. It's just nothing works there anymore. And this used to be the um, the Switzerland of South America. You know, it was a the, the thriving country. Like people used to emigrate from Spain and Italy there in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, all the big soccer teams, I remember, would have gone there on tours and stuff. But now it's just dead in the water. And it's really worrying for us because we have family there, the shortages of electricity, medicine, like I could tell you, yeah, uh, food, you know, it's just. Uh, it, uh, and, you know, there, there's islands off. Is it off Krakus? There's a lo lots of islands off of there. Is that right? Yeah, that was the yeah, area that looked amazing. To oh, me. oh my God, Las Roques! I didn't go. I haven't been there, but Michelle, my wife, has been there many times. Um, further up the coast would be absolutely stunning. Um, if anybody wants to go to the their idea of, it's very secluded as well. Um, Las Roques, it's pr like pristine beaches and absolutely gorgeous area. But some of those other islands directly off. Um, uh, Caracas, I would I would have been there to um, Isla Margarita many times. Um, beautiful, beautiful um, spot. So, um, uh, and then if you go in inland, I haven't done much traveling inland. That you have the Amazon. I mean, you've got waterfalls, just spectacular scenery and countryside. But and in Barcelona, is there somewhere where like you know you or Barcelona people? Barcelonans, is it, where do you go on holidays? Is it Costa Brava or where do people? Yeah, it is, yeah, it is typically. Um, although for us now, the last two summers, we normally go for a week, uh, the first week in September before the schools go back and it's a lot cheaper than July and August. Um, most, everybody in Spain goes on holidays in August. Um, like all the factories and the offices shut down for three weeks in august so it's uh, to go in that first week in september is a good time to go if you can um we've typically gone up to costa brava north towards the uh, french border um but for the last couple of years we've gone south and we love it because it's a lot quieter and you don't have to unless you go to one of the really rich resorts um some of those costa brava places spots have a lot of 
um, you know, the hotels on the seafronts and they're overrun with tourists and that. So I'd really recommend people to go south if they can. Um, for Sitges uh, would be south of the city as well. We go there a lot on day trips if we've got friends living there and stuff. Um, so that's a beautiful spot. But even if you go further down the coast, um, Messi lives actually beside Sitges, uh, Castle Fells, um, uh, Suarez as well has got a house there. But um, those spots south are beautiful as well and, and more secluded. So um, my last question is always, if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths, where would your happy place be? Um, I, th- there's one place I've been that I, uh, has always stayed with me, um, and that was Black Rock Desert in Nevada. I went to Burning Man, the Burning Man Festival, a couple of times in the 90s, and it's still going, uh, although it wasn't held this year. But it's... Uh, this festival, an art festival, basically, um, people from, it originated in San Francisco and they moved out to the desert in 1990 and held every Labor Day weekend, the first weekend in, in September. And uh, when I was going there, like there was about six or 8,000 people, I think it's up to about 75,000 people go to it now. But they essentially, they set up a temporary city in the desert and they construct all these art installations um, in the desert. Some of them will be, uh, they'll be working on them maybe in the city uh, during the year. They'll go out to the desert in the summer and work on them for a couple of months or a few weeks um, to build these huge art installations. And then everybody arrives the festival goes for about eight or ten days and you can't there's no uh, the economy is a barter economy you can't you have you can't buy anything there you have to bring your own water and your own food supplies and these art installations would just blow your mind extraordinary uh, they would reconstruct a hollywood mo- um, western movie set and so you'd walk down the street and it was like you're on in the middle of high noon they'd have a, a like a giant woman like 30 40 foot woman and there'd be a shower spraying from between her legs some people would be having their shower there in the morning or it, at night time then the city comes alive uh, like that you'll have an opera i remember seeing an opera at two or three in the morning 200 people opera um just out of this world and there's an amazing just um camaraderie and kind of community spirit there because everybody's in it together and it then concludes on the second last night they burn the man they have this kind of like um nuremberg rally procession through the city and uh, they come to the big man and then they, they everybody starts chanting burn the man and they burn the man it's a kind of ritual and it's it has at its roots it's kind of a pagan festival i guess but um then after that, the whole city is torched. They burn all the art installations. This is work people have put in, you know, months of work into it and everybody's in, you know, cost, fancy dress costume or whatever. And um, so the whole place is torched. And then at the end of the festival, everybody clears up their own um, their own debris and the philosophy or the mantra is leave no trace. So like people stay on there for a couple of weeks after the festival to ensure that the playa, the desert is returned to its original 
uh, condition. Um, but I've never felt as moved. And I always struggle to explain it to people, the atmosphere there. It's such a life-affirming experience to take yourself out of the normal rush of, of kind of life and live. And it shows the possibilities um, for communities, you know, that, that kind of um, that community spirit that's engendered, maybe because it's only temporary, it's possible. But it's an unbelievable atmosphere, and I'd encourage anybody to go to it. So that kind of, I'd say, that has stayed with me, those experiences there. So I would, I would say Burning Man, yeah. Thanks, Richard, for a great insight into life in Barcelona. And I just want to recommend his second book, El Clásico, Barcelona versus Real Madrid, Football's Greatest Rivalry. Great insight into both teams and, of course, the golden era with Messi and Ronaldo. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. Find out who's on every Tuesday. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergal.